Well, you are in for a treat today. One of my dear friends is coming to speak with us today. His name is Tim Moore, and I want to share a little bit about how we met. Tim is from Elizabethtown, Kentucky, just right down the road, not too far, but you know where we met? In Israel. So Tim was a pilgrim and uh, back in 2010 with his brother touring uh, Israel with Dr. David Reagan. And my wife and I, and Eddie and Cheryl Webster, were on that tour in 2010. And we met each other. And little did we know that in 2010 that Tim would be the one that Dr. David Reagan would ask to replace him in this ministry that, quite frankly, stretches around the entire world, the Lamb and Lion ministry. So since then, I consider that to be divine providence that he put us together. In 2019, I asked a group to go from this church, uh, and we went together. And then in 2023, I took a second group to Israel, and Tim led both of those trips uh, with me. Together, we took two giant groups of Nineveh people to Israel, and it has forever changed us. It changed this church. It did. It totally changed the DNA of this church and uh, in a powerful way. So I can tell you he is a man of God, that God is appointed for such a time as this. He's leading a ministry that's touching uh, millions of people. And we've got him here in, at Nineveh today, and I'm so excited to welcome him. And I want you to welcome Tim Moore, our brother. Thank you, brother. Love you. Well, what a joy it is to be here with you today. I hope I don't have to take a drink of Chad's water. I greet you in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and our soon returning King. You know, these last few weeks have been fraught with great anxiety. Even here in America, I can assure you that it's great anxiety for those in Israel, our dear friends, including our own guide, Erez, who I spoke to just the other day. But on October 7th, I don't know where you were, I assure you every Israeli, kind of like our 9-11 or back in uh, Pearl Harbor days, people would know exactly where they were. I was in Oregon, and I woke up that morning to the news, and as is my habit, I turned to the psalm of the day. When I say the psalm of the day, the psalm matching the seventh. So I turned to Psalm 7. And I read the words of David, and they seemed so fitting. David starts out, O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. He goes on to talk about the enemies that he has individually and, of course, as the leader of a nation. But in verse 6, he says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself, for you have appointed judgment. Verse 9, O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous, for the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God. And in the concluding verse, verse 17, I will give thanks to the Lord, to Yahweh, according to His righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High, as we've already done this morning. Brothers and sisters, I come to you today with a message of encouragement and hope. But if you came today weak and heavy laden, cumbered by a load of care, oh, I know a precious Savior who is my refuge, who's Terry's refuge, who can be your refuge. And so we have already and we will again this hour take even your concern to Him in prayer and you will find solace. Well, I come in the name of Lamb and Lion Ministries. Many of you are very familiar with our ministry. I'll tell you more as the, the morning goes on a little bit. We exist to proclaim the soon return of Jesus Christ. And I considered it a great blessing to be connected at the heart with this church. I feel like I'm not so much coming home as I'm coming to a family reunion with brothers and sisters in Christ who I'm connected at the heart level. It was a delight for me to be able to go, as Terry said, to Israel twice with great numbers from this church. And I will tell you, even in this group, you may not see, but there are a couple of young people in here who are our millennial kingdom scholars for us. In other words, we took them on scholarship. A young pastor and his wife from Minnesota 
who's already having great impact based on what he experienced. We had another young lady who was from India, and she joined, and boy, did she get a, a full measure of the gospel proclaimed to her, just, not just in word, but also in deed. I always had a curiosity about Nineveh. Y'all are familiar with the ancient city of Nineveh. It's a great city, had incredible architecture, structures. It was magnificent, but it was also a very pagan city. And I'm sure Terry has told you why this is Nineveh Christian Church. Because the greatest revival in all recorded history occurred there at Nineveh, where the king, all the way down to the lowest person, even the animals, the livestock, put on sackcloth and ashes, repenting of sin and turning back to the Lord. I happen to know that right here at, at this Nineveh, there are great things go, going on. Well, yes, some great things, but even greater than all the activities. Terry's told me about the changes in people's lives as they've given themselves to Jesus Christ. And this very morning, we're going to celebrate with other new believers who are testifying to their faith through baptism. I hope Terry's already told you one of the highlights, at least for me, of our last trip to Israel was when we went to the Jordan River. And I always love going there with pilgrims because whether they're being baptized for the first time or whether they're just re-demonstrating their profound faith in Jesus Christ as a public testimony, it is a beautiful moment there and a very beautiful sight. But while we were in the waters of the Jordan River, a young lady and her son approached Terry and me. They didn't even speak English. They didn't speak even our kind of English. But they asked to be baptized. And in the broken Spanish that I have and the ability to communicate, we confirmed that they, in fact, were committing themselves publicly to faith in Jesus Christ. And miraculously, we kept running into that same couple over and over again, a mother and her son from down in Central America. And we ended up getting a picture, as you can see here. But the, the joy of bringing another woman and, and young man before the Lord in baptism. We may never see them again, this side of heaven, but we'll have a reunion with another family gathering there someday. Well, if you are familiar with Lamb and Lion Ministries, you know that we have many different forms of outreach. One of the things we do every week is a television program called Christ in Prophecy, where we testify once again to the soon return of Jesus Christ to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. We hearken to the word in Revelation 19.10, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Everything about prophecy points in some way, shape, or another to Jesus Christ. He is the revealer, just as he was to John the Apostle in the book of Revelation, and he is the culmination of all of history. So we have other means of, of getting this word out. We have a bi-monthly magazine. As a matter of fact, I brought some samples. You're welcome to grab one after the service back at the table. This year, we've been stepping through the signs of the times, all the signs pointing to the return of Jesus Christ. And our magazine, you can get for free electronically. You can sign up this morning. We'll send it to you as a free digital copy, or you can get the hard copy for $25 a month. And here uh, at the end of this year, we'll even offer all six of these editions of the Signs of the Times and a special bundle price of uh, reduced even from the normal price. You remember a few years ago, Terry, the last time I was here, I spoke on the Lord's coming, but I asked you a question. If you remember, I asked, what are you looking forward to? And I discussed some of the things that I look forward to. I'm always looking forward to something coming, whether it's Christmas or the next time that my family gets together. My wife and I always look forward to the next grandchild. So far, five, but eventually I'm sure there will be more mores joining us. And now every time I show this picture, and the picture is slightly updated, but my friend and yours, Bob Russell, who follows me sometimes at our conferences and other things, will scoff at me showing grandchildren and say, oh, Tim Moore showed his grandkids again. He said, you remember what happened when a man asked Winston Churchill if he'd ever talked to him about his grandchildren? 
And Winston Churchill's response was, no, and I want to thank you for that. So let me be very clear. I haven't talked to you about my grandchildren. I've just demonstrated my looking forward to something exciting. The more I thought about this, even on reflecting my last time here at Nineveh and anticipating, looking forward to a coming up edition of Christ in Prophecy, where we're going to talk about testimonies, I thought, do I really look forward to sharing my testimony? How many of you look forward to the next time you get to share your testimony? Uh, there's a few. That's good. I honestly have never really been excited about sharing my testimony because mine is kind of boring. Who wants to hear about my testimony? I was raised in a Christian home. I kind of was morphed into the faith until in a dramatic moment as a very young man, I recognized my need of a Savior. And not until 1993, shortly before Terry and I met, when Dr. David Reagan introduced me to the prophetic word in Scripture, did I begin to resonate in my heart with an anticipation, a looking forward to my blessed hope. But the more I thought about my testimony, I realized people don't really want to hear about my testimony. As a matter of fact, I don't want to even tell you much about my testimony, but I don't need to. What I can tell you about is my great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because people don't want to hear much about me, but I could talk about Him all day long. As a matter of fact, I think I will this morning by opening, again, His prophetic word. So I have another question for you to kick off our brief conversation this morning, me talking and you rhetorically considering. And the question is this, what is the most amazing experience you've ever had? The most amazing event, if you will, you've ever experienced. Think about that for a moment. Is it the birth of a child? Is it your wedding day? Was it your salvation? Was it the last UK victory? What stands out to you as the most amazing event you've ever experienced? Well, as I pondered this, I, I thought about the Apostle Peter. How would he answer that question? Now, that's a beautiful scene, even from The Chosen, which they do a pretty good job of dramatizing the apostles and, and their interaction with the Lord. I don't put that production on a pedestal, but I just try to imagine being the man, Peter. Well, let's think about how Peter might answer that question. We know that he was present for a miraculous great catch of fish. Terry likes to fish. He probably catches them one or two at a time. Peter twice pulled in netfuls, astounding to this man who made his livelihood by fishing. He walked on water twice, once by faith and once by grace. He was there to witness the healing of paralytics and the lame, the blind, the deaf, lepers, demon-possessed, and even saw the raising of dead children and a man named Lazarus. Amazing. He witnessed Jesus' transfiguration. We're going to talk about that in a moment. He saw tongues of fire appear on the disciples' heads as they gathered in the upper room following Jesus' death and resurrection and His ascension. And then Peter went out and preached to the gathered throngs in Jerusalem, and over 3,000 gave themselves in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing. He was present when he had a little dream. How many times? One, two, three times when he saw a sheet descending out of heaven and the Lord saying, take and eat. And Peter, hard-headed, you know, like he was, said, no, Lord, I can't eat. That's unclean. Take and eat. No, I can't take and eat. Take and eat. Okay. You notice how things took a while to get through Peter's head. I always joke that the Lord named Peter the rock, kind of his little tongue-in-cheek just about his hard-headedness. I identify with Peter a lot. But aren't you glad Peter was obedient to take and eat figuratively and to go that very next day to Cornelius, who was the first Gentile convert, the forerunner of all of us who have put faith in Christ who are not of Jewish heritage. 
So I didn't even mention something that Peter witnessed or at least was reminded of on a daily basis every morning. Can you imagine Peter waking up every morning to the, to the sound of a rooster crowing and being reminded every day that the Lord in His grace had restored Peter and said to him, feed my sheep. He'd given him a purpose for his life. Well, with that in mind, understanding that Peter's experiences were incredible, miraculous, life-changing. Let's hear the testimony of this man who the Lord commissioned to feed my sheep. If you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 16. When Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Certainly He was. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory, the Father Himself. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So here Peter's talking about the transfiguration and witnessing Jesus Christ being glorified before His very eyes as the Father in heaven testified to who the Son was. But hear the word of Peter in verse 19. So we... And brothers and sisters, the we here includes Peter and you and me who have put our faith in Christ. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. More sure than what? More sure than all the things Peter witnessed with his own eyes. More sure even than the transfiguration that he was an eyewitness to. The prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. So this begs a question. We're going to talk about God's prophetic word this morning. What is prophecy? If you looked it up in the dictionary, what does that word mean? Well, if you go to gotquestions.com, this is a very good evangelical Christian website. It defines prophecy as this, simply a message from God. So to prophesy is to proclaim a message from God. And a person who does that is a prophet. It's pretty simple and straightforward. We tend to think of this as foretelling. And what is foretelling? Well, foretelling is nothing more than seeing things in the future or revealing things which are going to happen before they happen. And let me be very clear, the, the Word of God is the only holy text. And I use that phrase because other so-called holy texts do not have prophetic words of what is to come and of fulfilled prophecies that have been declared. Only the Word of God contains those kind of things. I'll come to a passage in a moment when Jesus himself tells his apostles, when you see all these things, what things? The things that he has foretold would come to pass. Then they could know the time of the end is drawing near. But foretelling is only one aspect of Bible prophecy. The other aspect of Bible prophecy is forthtelling. Forthtelling. What do I mean by that? Well, over 1,900 times in Scripture, prophets began their revelation by saying something like this, Thus saith the Lord. And by this definition, forthtelling, every time Terry or Chad or anyone else gets behind this pulpit and proclaims the word of the Lord, they are prophesying in the sense that they are forthtelling God's truth. Now, if Terry ever gets up here and tells you what lottery numbers to use next week, if he's not right, I can tell you the biblical admonition for that. But forthtelling is something that we need in our lives. That's why we come and are united with brothers and sisters in Christ, so that they can forthtell into our lives when we're about to step into a ditch or walk into a pit 
and they can hold us accountable. Now, those of us who study Bible prophecy will tell you that foretelling makes up about 27 to 30% of, of the Bible. In other words, almost a third of the Bible is foretelling in nature. It is a prophecy or contains prophecies that are looking forward into the future. Some of those prophecies have been fulfilled. So, for instance, in the first coming of Jesus Christ, a number of prophecies were fulfilled. Some of them await fulfillment still. But all of Scripture, I would submit to you, is prophetic in that all of it is the revelation of God. Did you ever think about the entire Bible being prophetic in nature? Well, if it's not foretelling, then it is forthtelling. 1,900 times in Scripture, I already told you, the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. And let me just say this, foretelling or forthtelling, prophecies were given to glorify God, to edify the people of God. And when it comes to edification, just like a, a pastor or a close Christian brother or sister will do, that can sometimes take the form of a rebuke, an encouragement, a warning, or the giving of hope. When it comes to rebuke, I point out none other than Nathan, who the Scripture describes as a prophet. And he came to prophesy to King David and telling him about a rich man who coveted his poor neighbor's little lamb. And he decided to take the little lamb for himself, robbing his poor neighbor. King David was outraged at the injustice of such an act until Nathan the prophet revealed the Fourth told truth by saying to the king, You are the man. Is that a prophesy? Yes, it is. Prophesying. And so, foretelling or foretelling. Well, let's talk about foretelling the, the ability to see what's going to happen in the future. God Himself declares that only He has the ability to see and to declare the audacity to proclaim in advance what he will do in human history. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 21 through 24, the Lord says this. And not, hear the scoffing tone, the sarcasm in the Lord's voice. Can your idols make such claims as these? Let them come and show what they can do, says God, the King of Israel. Let them try to tell us what occurred in years gone by or what the future holds. Yes, that's it. If you are God's, Tell what will happen in the days ahead. You see, none of these false gods, these idols, can speak truth. As the prophets of Baal realized at Mount Carmel, where Terry and I and many of you have been, they are silent. Only the true and living God speaks and reveals the future. Now, this is not to say he reveals all to us. How many of you would like to know the mind of God? Anybody? I've got one fellow back here. All right, you must have a very large brain, brother, because I've thought about it. If the Lord tried to reveal the mind of God into Tim Moore's brain, I have a smaller than average brain, and it would explode. It'd be clean up on aisle four. The Lord tried to contain all his knowledge in Tim Moore's brain. It's not possible. And Moses tells us as much in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, he says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, to Yahweh, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever. What things had God revealed? Well, he had revealed the law, as Moses goes on to say. But this principle is true throughout Scripture. There are certain aspects of the knowledge of God I couldn't possibly contain. There are things in the Word of God that are mysterious to me as much as I've studied it all these years. I dare say there's a few things that are mysterious to Terry, and I'm okay with that. I'm reminded having at one point had a top secret clearance that I was briefed into certain programs of government secrecy, technology, if you will. I used to say in the mid-90s, we were doing things that when those programs are declassified, probably in the next few years, people will say, wow, we can do that? And the answer will be, no, we could do that 30 years ago. Amazing stuff. But I only knew a small sliver of the entire spectrum of secrecy, even in the United States government. Why? Because I didn't have a need to know 
all those other things. And the Lord has revealed to us the things that he wants us to know, the things that we need to know to what? To have faith in him, to have assurance, to have hope, even in the midst of chaos swirling in our world around us. But there are certain things that we simply don't have a need to know. You say, well, I'd like to know. Well, again, how big is your brain? Can you contain the mind of God? I certainly cannot. Now, I would assert to you that there are things that the Lord has revealed that even the disciples knew. And sometimes they didn't know a lot, we like to think. But I'll use this example. If you turn to Matthew chapter 24, the apostles are with Jesus. They've come to Jerusalem. Many of you have been to Jerusalem to the very site there of the Temple Mount. You've seen the incredible stones just in the retaining wall alone. How large are some of those stones? Bigger than a school bus. Heavier than the modern cranes can even lift, and yet they were put into place and fit together without mortar so closely that you can't get a piece of paper in between. Herod the Great truly was a great builder. And so the apostles coming with Jesus from Galilee, and by the way, what, what kind of place was Galilee according to the folks living in Jerusalem? That was the sticks. Those were the hillbillies from up north coming down to Jerusalem saying, golly, look at all these things. And sure enough, that's what it says. Verse 20 or chapter 24, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out all the temple buildings to him. They were amazed at the grandeur and majesty of the buildings. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things, these structures? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Well, that was puzzling to them. As a matter of fact, it puzzled the Pharisees later on when Jesus had similar words and said, tear all this down, I'll rebuild it in three days. They said, three days? It's taken decades to build this. Herod's been building this since before you were born. How are you going to tear it down and rebuild it? They didn't understand. He was referring to his own body. But in this case, Jesus is revealing to his disciples what is to come just about 40 years later in AD 70. So notice in verse 3, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They got it. They understood some aspects and Jesus answered and said to them, Oh, fellas, you got it all wrong. I'm, no, wait, that's not what he said. <laughs> they got some things right. They trusted and knew that there would be major destruction in Jerusalem. They understood already at this point in Jesus' ministry that he would be going away in some manner and he would be coming again. And they also understood clearly that there would be an end of the age. And Jesus went on throughout the rest of Matthew 24 to reveal signs that they could watch for when all these things would come to pass. He begins his response there in verse 4 just by saying, see to it that no one misleads you. And then he goes on to describe the signs. And yet there are other times when the apostles, quite frankly, just don't seem to get it. So in Matthew chapter 16, we can talk about how Jesus reveals certain things to them. It says, from that time, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and then be raised up on the third day. What we sang about this morning. But Peter took him aside, remember Peter? And began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And what did Peter's... How did the Lord respond to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. Now this is in the same chapter where Peter was the first to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. When the Lord asked him, who do you say that I am? The point I make is the apostles got some things very clearly. But at this stage of Jesus' ministry, they didn't get everything. So we're going to play a little game this morning. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Uh, well, actually, let's, let's update that. Do you have more understanding than an Old Testament 
prophet, or dare I say, than the apostles of Christ while they walked with him on this earth. Do you, sitting here this morning, have more discernment and understanding than an Old Testament prophet or even the apostles of Christ in the year 2023? As you ponder that, let's just look at the evidence provided in Scripture. Daniel said this, As for me, I could not understand. Understand what? What God had been revealing to him. So I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. Daniel, the great prophet, the great prophet who saw the entire sweep of human history, couldn't understand even the prophecies he was recording because he was peering through a glass dimly. He was looking out into the distant future. Very next verse, Daniel is told, many will be pure, or purged, purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. When? When will they understand in the fullness of time? Here's the analogy I would use. Daniel is, is looking down the road at a distant destination, a distant vision. I would dare say he is seeing, figuratively, the same thing that Abraham saw. You remember last time I was here, I talked about Abraham and some of his vision. And Hebrews records that Abraham, throughout his sojourn in Canaan, was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder was God. Which city? The eternal city. Did Abraham ever see it? Not in his lifetime. Did Abraham ever see any of the promises of God fulfilled in his lifetime? Well, what were the promises of God to Abraham? That he would have so many children and descendants. They'd be a multitude that was beyond count. How many children did Abraham have? One, son of promise. Even his name, Abraham, which means father of many, had to sound like a joke to those who would scoff. Your, your name is what? Father of many? Who gave you that name? My God. Your God told you your father of many. How many you got? Well, I got one so far. And you believe him? And God's promised you this land and you're living in a tent? Well, God's promised that someday... This land will be mine, and the, there will be a city. Oh, sure. What else has your God promised you? But Abraham believed God. What about you and me? What about us as we hurl through life, kind of like driving down the road? It's almost impossible to see the blur of what is going by when you're going 90 miles an hour down the highway. You ever thought about that? But what you can see with hindsight is oftentimes much clearer. How many of us, looking back on the, the span of our own lives, have much greater clarity looking back than we do even regarding the moment in which we're living, and certainly regarding the future? Brothers and sisters, we as followers of Jesus Christ have 2,000 years of hindsight as to what the church has experienced. We have all the hindsight of what has happened in the ages gone by that Daniel was gazing forward and trying to understand. And you have the advantage of looking back and seeing how God has already been fulfilling His promises. So on that note, you can recognize some of the signs of the times. Now, I've observed before, some of these signs are, are kind of humorous, like newspaper headline one time that read, Blind woman receives kidney from brothers she hasn't seen in years. What? Who writes these things? Or other signs that we see going down the road. I wonder where this was at. Maybe eastern Kentucky. I always wonder about this one. Watch out for falling cows. I mean, where is this person driving? I've never had that, that sign. But in terms of the signs of the times, just as I've already pointed out in our magazine series this year, Dr. Reagan years ago divided these into the signs of nature, the signs of society, signs that are spiritual in nature, signs of world politics, signs of technology, and signs of Israel. So you have 2020 hindsight to have already seen and now recognize some of these signs being fulfilled before your very eyes. An example of natural signs. While I was serving in the legislature just up the road, almost 10 years ago, Governing Magazine, which is a publication sent to state legislators around the country, 
Their cover article is a climate of change. And if you can't read the fine print, it says governments throughout the country are touting the need for resilience in the face of ever more frequent natural disasters. Well, the Lord himself said that the signs of the times, including natural disasters, would be like labor pains on a woman with child. And every woman knows how labor pains begin and how they increase in frequency and intensity. When Amy and I are told another grandbaby is coming, we always look forward to, to that due date. But we know the doctor doesn't know for sure when that baby's going to come. It's a guess. And even when the labor pangs start, you don't say, oh, labor pain started. Well, that baby will be here in seven hours and 34 minutes. No, you just know the baby's coming for sure. Same thing with the labor pangs regarding these signs of the times. When they are increasing in intensity and frequency, we know the Lord is coming soon. And indeed, they have been, and even this secular magazine proclaimed. When it comes to signs of society, we could talk about how Paul warned Timothy what the end days would be like with difficult times coming and men being lovers of all kind of evil and, and their character becoming degraded. But just to point out quickly, what are the three things Paul in this passage to Timothy says that men will love in the end times? They're going to love self, they're going to love money, and they're going to love pleasure. That sounds like our society in a nutshell. The self-esteem movement gone crazy. The love of money or materialism and the love of pleasure, which causes so many to chase after pornography and drugs and alcohol and, and hedonism at every turn. You know, William Booth, who was a prophetic voice in his own, he's a founder of the Salvation Army, predicted that by the end of the 20th century, and he wrote this over a hundred years ago, that the church would embrace Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, and heaven without hell. Sounds like your best life now. And there are people preaching to thousands on a weekly basis these kind of false gospels. Even here in our own commonwealth, we've had a rise of paganism, which some leaders are eager to endorse. Be careful what you look for on the internet. I actually pulled up uh, trying to find a graphic to demonstrate this age of sinfulness, and I found this. The age of sin. The age of sin motif and mentality is this, if you can't read it, reject the order of creation, revel in the annihilation of man as the image of God, destroy plot designs of death, disfigure the face of man and woman. And I pulled it up so you could see it a little bit more clearly, but actually this is presented on a t-shirt. There's many retailers who provide this, and they are proud to declare that this is printed in the USA and you get fast shipping delivery. Of course, no pagan would want to be without a shirt like this. But my question is, who writes this kind of stuff? Satan himself? And yet that is the mentality of our age. What about world politics and the ability to foresee the end? Well, just 11 years ago, President Barack Obama scoffed when his Republican challenger in the presidential election, Mitt Romney, said Russia is going to reascend. And Barack Obama said, oh, come on now. The 1980s are now calling to ask for their foreign policy back because the Cold War has been over for 20 years. In other words, the Russian bear has been defamed. Well, how's that working out for us today? Bible prophecy declared that Russia would indeed be a threat from the north coming against Israel, aligning with Iran and other malevolent nations. And we are seeing that coming to pass before our very eyes. My son flew as a fighter pilot over in the Middle East, and they had to deconflict their flight paths with Russian pilots who are just on the northern border of Israel. You don't hear that in the news very much, do you? Well, how about technology? Not only have we seen a vast increase in technology threatening us on various levels, we have the ability to understand how God's prophetic word can and will be fulfilled. I could give you the example of the two witnesses in Revelation 11 who will lie in the streets of Jerusalem while the whole world looks on. For 2,000 years almost, Christians thought, well, I wonder how that could possibly happen. How's the whole world going to see these men lying in the streets of Jerusalem? Is it supernatural? Does God open their eyes somehow? No. 
You aim a camera at them, beam the signal around the world, and the whole world looks on. When we go to Israel, many of us who have gone will tell our families, hey, we're going to be in the square surrounding the Western Wall at such and such a time. We'll be waving. Pull up your computer and you can see us. And that's exactly how that prophecy will be fulfilled through modern technology. Well, the greatest of all signs, the ones I haven't, one I haven't spent too much time on today, but the drama is, is dramatic or extreme right now, is the signs of Israel. Why is there such hatred for Israel? Why is Hamas, let alone Hezbollah, and the Islamic Jihad, and the Muslim Brotherhood in Iran coming against Israel? Because Bible prophecy declared that would be so. Indeed, although many of us are very glad right now America stands with Israel, that will change. Because God's Word says that all the nations of the world will come against Jerusalem and against Israel. But in terms of prophetic fulfillment before our very eyes, the Word of God said, Behold, days are coming when it will no longer be said, As the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but rather, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the lands of the north and all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. To this day, Jews celebrate Passover once a year, commemorating the deliverance from captivity in Egypt. And yet the modern-day regathering of the Jewish people to Israel is even more miraculous. And yet some of them don't understand that. My question this morning is, do you? Do you realize that what's transpired in the last hundred years is a miraculous fulfillment of God's prophetic word? I ask Christians who a little bit more seasoned when I began in this ministry, who perhaps were alive in 1948, what the response was in the Christian church. Was it excitement, joy that God was fulfilling His promises to the Jewish people? And they look at each other and say, what? I don't remember any talk about it. Because the collective response of the church was, what? What happened? Same thing in 1967, when the Jews came back in possession of Jerusalem. But God promised that He would bring the Jewish people out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them where? to their own land on the mountains of Israel. Right now, you're hearing even the media shift toward discussing a two-state solution. Even our own administration here in Washington is saying, well, we stand with Israel, but what we really need is a two-state solution. Word of God says this. The Lord said, I will plant them on whose land? Palestinian land? No, their own land. And they will not again be rooted out from the land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. So even with regard to Israel, these four great prophecies have been fulfilled before our very eyes. The regathering of the Jewish people, the reestablishment of Israel, the repossession of Jerusalem in 1967, and the refocusing of world attention. Let me give you another example of how you understand prophecy more even than the people who recorded it. We'll go to Abraham one more time. Abraham recognized prophetically that God would provide for himself the lamb for the sacrifice. Do you think Abraham realized when he made that utterance to Isaac, the ramifications, no pun intended, of that prophetic word? But you do, certainly. Because who provided for himself the sacrifice, the lamb? God. And you see that with clear hindsight. Praise the Lord that we live now and can see the sweep of history and all God's done to fulfill His Word. I'll give you another prophecy. The apostles didn't understand in Matthew chapter 21. To me, one of the most uncharacteristic moments in the ministry of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, Terry, but when Jesus walks out as He's on His way to Jerusalem, and it says He was hungry and He saw a fig tree, and he was aggravated because there were no figs. But Mark, in chapter 11, actually records, and it wasn't the season for figs. You get that? 
Jesus is aggravated because the fig tree has no figs, but it wasn't the season for figs. And yet Jesus' response in his aggravation was to curse the fig tree. Does anybody think that's uncharacteristic of the Lord? Certainly he knew that it wasn't the season for figs. Certainly he wouldn't be irrational enough to think, well, it should have figs anyway. And yet he cursed the fig tree, and his disciples were a little bit surprised at that. They were even more shocked when later they walked by and the fig tree had withered. Why did the Lord curse an unfruitful fig tree? Well, in Matthew 24, he goes on to tell us. Because he gets, beginning in verse 32, he says, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already come, become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Folks, I believe absolutely that Israel, as the word of God indicates repeatedly, is represented by a fig tree, cursed by the Lord for a season because it was not bearing fruit, even though it was not the time for it to bear much fruit. Yes, there are Jews that followed Christ then. There are still, praise the Lord, Jews who follow him today. But the masses have rejected him in this season. And they have been set aside so that we, as Gentile believers, could be grafted in. But the Lord says, when that leaf becomes tender and puts forth new shoots, you know the time is near. And right now, these last three weeks, there are Jews even in this country who are realizing we're not even safe here. All those liberal progressives who claim that they were our friends, they hate us just as much as Hamas. And so there are American Jews who are coming to their senses and realizing we may have to go somewhere else. There's only one place we can go. The Lord is working through even the tragic calamities of this world to bring about his will. Let me say this, the Lord is working through even the tragic calamities of your life to draw you to him. Do you realize that the moment you experience them or does it only occur to you in hindsight that the Lord's faithfulness is proven even in the midst of those dark days? Well, here's what Jesus Christ had to say to his disciples. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did, did not see it. And to hear what you hear and not, did not hear it. Brothers and sisters, as that was true of the apostles, how much more true is that of us? For 2,000 years, Christians read, you know, somehow the Lord's going to regather the Jewish people. But I don't know how that's going to happen because they're very happy in places like Germany and Poland. But the Word of God says it's going to happen, so I believe it. I don't know how it's going to happen, but somehow all these signs are going to increase in intensity and in frequency, but, but I don't yet see it. Oh, Lord, that I could see it in my days. I've had people say, you know, my grandparents expected the Lord to come, and He didn't come in their lifetime. Why should I get excited? Well, brother and sister, if they were looking forward to all these signs multiplying before their eyes, and you're able to see it, how much more blessed are you to live in such a time as this? And do you realize it? Do you recognize that while the world seems to be falling to pieces, the prophetic pieces are in fact falling into place and at an unprecedented rate? Now what's the world's reaction and response to a message like this? Oh, come on. You Christians, you're a bunch of losers. You believe in make-believe stuff. I'm reminded of the word of the Lord in Psalm chapter 19. He says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring of the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Now the psalmist goes on to say, they don't speak audible words, but the word of the Lord and the, the glory of God is manifest all around us if we have eyes to see. And yet the scoffers, Look at the same heavens and say, well, that's all just chance and happenstance. They look at the miracle of new life, even down at the microscopic level of DNA, and they say, ah, oh, maybe we were planted here by aliens, but we know better. We know better. As to the signs and seasons, brethren, you have no 
reason for anything to be written to you. For you know full well that the Lord will come. How? Like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief, for you are sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. And for just a moment, let's consider pronouns. The world's all about pronouns today, right? Look at the pronouns in this passage. You know certain things. You yourselves know full well. Who's Paul talking to? Well, he's talking to the church at Thessalonica, Tim. Yes, and by extension to all of us. All those who have put faith in Christ know full well that he's going to come. While they are saying peace, destruction will come upon them and they will not escape. Who's he talking about here? The unbelieving world. But you are not in darkness. The day should not overtake you like a thief, for you are sons of light and of day. And then Paul gets so excited, he includes himself. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep, but let us be alert and sober. Alert for what? For the moment the Lord calls, and we join him in the air. The great moment known as the rapture. So right now, you gaze out over the world, and you see all sorts of chaos, and you wonder, how does it all fit together? And you even may ask, who has known the mind of the Lord that He will direct them? As I said, I can't contain the mind of God, and yet Scripture tells us we have the mind of Christ, and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to begin to understand things. You say, well, what, what can I understand? Well, I'll give you an example. Read the book of Revelation. Twice in the book of Revelation, it says this, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. How do you heed? Same way Abraham did. You believe. Henry Morris said this, regarding the, and you can read his quote there, but he said regarding Revelation, it's not, not hard to understand, it's hard to believe. If you believe it, you will understand it. It's hard to believe a man could raise from the dead. That doesn't make sense scientifically. I got two engineering degrees. It makes no sense to me, but I believe it because God said it. And because I believe it, I, I do begin to understand. Same formula as Abraham. Because he believed God, his belief was credited to him as righteousness. How do I interpret Bible prophecy? Well, Dave Reagan said, if a plain sense makes sense, look for no other sense lest you end up with nonsense. And I would dare say, take the Word of God literally. In that regard, learn the lesson of the donkey. The prophet Zechariah said, behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey. I think the modern-day scholars and theologians might say, well, what that really means is Jesus is, you know, the coming Messiah would be really humble, and he'd be... No, no. He was humble, but he came on a donkey. The word was very clear. And so to fulfill the word of the Lord, a humble little donkey bore our king into Jerusalem. When the British captured Jerusalem back at the, in the First World War, the British general refused to ride on horseback. He said, when my king came to this city, he rode on a, a donkey. I'll walk. Fulfilling the word of the Lord down to every detail. Well, back to Peter and his testimony. Peter said in his first letter, the end of all things is near. And that theme resonates throughout Bible prophecy. James says the coming of the Lord is near. John, it is the last hour. In Revelation, Jesus says the time is near. Are you ready? Do you really understand that even though eye has not seen, ear has not heard, heard, the things which have entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for us, and yet to us who believe, we have, again, hindsight and discernment given to us by the Holy Spirit because God has revealed these things to us, even the depths of God. In that context, it brings to light 
one more time the passage from Moses. The secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us. So what do we do in this day and age? First of all, the people who know their God should display strength and take action. That's the word of Daniel. Do you know your God? The world is getting more chaotic day by day. Does that give you anxiety or, or cause you to have fear? If you know your God, you will display strength and take action. Action to do what? To share the Lord. To live in a holy manner. And to keep your eyes on Christ. Jeremiah in the midst of a very chaotic period. I mean, we're call, we call him the prophet of doom or the weeping prophet because he witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem. And yet in chapter 29, he said, go about your life and seek the welfare of the city in which you live. He's talking to the exiles. And so indeed, we should seek the welfare of the communities in which we live while keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ. Paul assures us that the night is almost gone the day is near, and so we should lay aside the deeds of darkness. My benediction, if you will, to us this morning is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of Him, so that you, the eyes of your heart, having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward who? toward those of us who believe according to the working of the might of his strength. So the question I will follow up as a close is, why is God waiting? Why don't he just come on down? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Brothers and sisters, when I first heard the message of God's prophetic word promising that Jesus is coming again in 1993, I was ready for him to come then. I didn't think we'd make it to the year 2000. In Y2K, I certainly didn't think we'd make it to 2023. But aren't you glad the timing of the Lord's coming isn't determined by Tim Moore? Because he, if he'd come in 1993 or in 2000, you or you or you or how many of us would have been left behind? The Lord will come at the appointed time known only to the Father. And the Lord is not slow about His promise. What promise? Peter tells us in the preceding verses. His promise to come again. He's not slow about this, as some counsel on us, but He's patient, not wanting any to perish. He wants us to be born again to a living hope the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So my only question this morning, truly as a final question is, is your name written in the book of life? If it is, then the Word of God promises that you will have discernment. You will have a growing understanding even of the revelations of God that He has given to you. It requires that you read. Yes, it requires a dirty five-letter word called S-T-U-D-Y. But he gives you a blessed hope if your name is in the book. If your name's not in the book, then Jesus' coming will not be light or hope for you. As a matter of fact, instead of being your blessed hope, he will come as your holy terror. So this morning, I know there's going to be a baptism. Terry said my time was as the Spirit led, and I've, I've followed the Spirit's leading. But before we celebrate the rebirth of new creatures who have said, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and don't know the Lord as your blessed hope, your name's not in that book's, book of life, then Terry's going to come, and this is the day of salvation. Don't wait another day, another hour, because the Lord could come for you this morning. Godspeed. The secret things belong to God, but the revealed things belong to us and we are accountable to them. When people come down front for invitation, usually I ask the same thing. What's the Holy Spirit telling you? So let me ask it to a broad audience today. What's the Holy Spirit telling you? These times that we live in, what's going on in the Middle East? What's the Holy Spirit telling you? Are you ready? Are you telling people? 
Are you preparing yourself, preparing those around you? So we're going to do an invitation time today. And what's the Holy Spirit saying? What's the Word of God saying? The secret things belong to God. We, we don't know everything. But the revealed things have been revealed for a purpose that you might know the one true God and that you might know his son personally as your Savior, your Lord. Let's stand together. We'll worship during the invitation.